0: I don't know if you've um, ever had the privilege of owning a home, but if you have, then you will have shopped for that home. Uh, shopping for a house <laughs> is can be an overwhelming experience. There's a lot of things that need to fall into place before you can buy a piece of property or a house. And uh, the job of a good realtor and home inspector is of course uh, to go with you to look at these uh, homes And uh, point out the areas uh, that, that seem insignificant, even hidden, but are so significant. I mean, the things that we consider significant, usually, is we walk into a home and you go, oh my, I love the flooring, I love the colors, that kitchen is amazing, right? That's what we do. But those are cosmetic things, and what really is significant about the house are what people call the bones. Does it have good bones? Right, the structure. So, the job of a good realtor and home inspector is to to take a close look at things like the foundation. Are there any big cracks in there that would cause the roof line to sag? What's the plumbing like, the electrical, any load-bearing beams that have been altered or played with? inside the home, what's the HVAC system like, the heating, the cooling, all of that kind of stuff, things that we don't normally see, seemingly insignificant, unseen, but are not at all insignificant, in fact, they're the most important of all. If you've um, had uh, uh, a chance to buy a car, especially in these pandemic days with supply shortages, like you, you go around to car lots and they're practically empty, it's such a weird thing but supply chains all over the world have been uh, hindered not only because of the pandemic but because of um, other issues. Cars, one of the main issues of supply is one little microchip <laughs> that one company manufactures for a whole ton of different makes of vehicles. And this plant, which is overseas, burned to the ground. And I tell you, to, to restore a manufacturing uh, facility that does microchips that probably cost just a few dollars, has completely, completely cut down a supply chain. It's one little chip that goes in your dashboard somewhere that you never see, but without it you cannot drive. The Christmas story also has elements that at various levels and to various people seem so insignificant, so small, but that couldn't be further from the truth. These components of the Christmas story are so significant. And this morning, we're going to look at four of them. First of all, let's look at the setting. A lot of us don't give this consideration. But going back to the beginning of the story, in fact, I want to back up a little bit further to verse four of Luke chapter two. It says, and Joseph also went up from Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, Because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field. I've highlighted some of the more important words of the setting of this story. From Nazareth to Bethlehem, they made the journey. Remember when Jesus was first calling his disciples and Nathaniel, uh, said to, I forget who he was uh, actually with, another disciple that Jesus called, but N- Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a nobody kind of a place. Like what good could come from there? And yet Joseph and Mary went from Nazareth where they lived to Bethlehem, the city of David, because there was a census being taken and they had to register there because Joseph was from the line and lineage and the tribe of Judah, of David. So they went there. The city of Bethlehem, a backwoods village in the shadow of Jerusalem. Uh, I knew somebody one time who referred to Hagesy <coughs> as the armpit, what was it, <laughs> what was it, John? do Yeah, don't ask you. It wasn't you. It wasn't you. But uh, as, as, the, as the armpit of Abbotsford or the valley or Chilliwack, I can't remember. I'm like, What? Legacy is awesome. Maybe there's some good deodorant in that armpit. I don't know. Nonetheless, Bethlehem would have been considered, and Nazareth for sure, the armpit of Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was it, right? That was the epicenter of of the Jewish culture. That's where their temple was. That's where they worshiped. That's where people made pilgrimage to sacrifice to the Lord. And uh, that's where the sacrificial... Lamb was slaughtered once a year in the Holy of Holies by the high priest only once a year. Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Backwoods town. What's significant about that? But Bethlehem is super significant. You know, uh, we read in our Bible the, uh, the, the city of God, uh, the new Jerusalem, which is yet to come coming down out of heaven and we thought well i thought the city of david was jerusalem well it is because that's where david reigned as king but bethlehem is also the city of david because that's where david was born and that's where david was anointed king of israel in bethlehem so significant there's so much more to Bethlehem that meets the eyes, going all the way back to ancient days. Bethlehem was first known as Ephrath. Ephrath, E-P-H-R-A-T-H. Look it up in the Bible. It's where Jacob, who was renamed Israel after he met with God at Bethel, Jacob was called Israel from that point on. He was the patriarch, the father of the 12 tribes of the people of God. It is where Jacob, from Bethel, journeying, buried his beloved wife, Rachel, who died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. Ephrath. It's also where Boaz, remember Boaz? It's also where Boaz threshed grain. And where Ruth the Moabitess, lay at his feet. And on that threshing floor, Boaz uh, had pity and mercy on her. And he went to the elders at the city gate as kinsman redeemer and said, I want her as my wife. That's where Boaz met Ruth. Boaz, the great grandfather of David. Without Boaz and Ruth meeting at the threshing floor in Ephrath, in Bethlehem, Jesus would not have been born. I want to read a little bit from you for you from Genesis 35 to show you just how significant it gets better that the setting is that we're talking about here in the Christmas story. Genesis 35, verse 16. Then they journeyed, that's, uh, this is now Jacob and uh, uh, Rachel. Uh, then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name ben Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up, Set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Now get this Israel journeyed on from Ephrath and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. The Tower of Eder. In Hebrew, it is Migdal Eder, and it is in the same region of Bethlehem. Migdal Eder. Migdal Eater literally means, migdal means tower. It means an elevated platform or wooden stage. It can also mean a pulpit. A pulpit from which things are declared and announced. That's migdal, a tower. Eater means literally flock or herd. It is the shepherd's tower. Tower of the flock, a shepherd's watchtower. What's significant, too, about Eder, I did a little research. If you go to 1 Chronicles 24, verse 30, Eder was a son of Mushai. Mushai was a Levitical priest. So Mishnah sources indicate that it was where the Messiah at Migdal Eder would make himself known. And that animals who were found or that were kept in the fields within a certain distance from Migdal Eder were subject to being used as sacrificial animals in the rituals of the Jerusalem temple. You see, sacrificial lambs that were used for sacrifices in Jerusalem had to come within a five-mile radius of Jerusalem. Migdal Eder, the shepherd's tower, is right between Bethlehem and Jerusalem and falls within those five miles. It's where high priests resided in Jerusalem who would get sacrificial lambs from the Bethlehem region and bring them into Jerusalem to sacrifice in the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur once a year. The top of Migdal Eder, this watchman's tower, was for watching, it was for declaring, it was for watching for danger, for thieves, sheep thieves, and, and the bottom of it was used for birthing these sacrificial lambs. So I want to take you to Micah for a little bit. This is so interesting. If you look at, uh, I, I took them a little bit of, out of order, but Marilyn, I'm going to start at the bottom. Micah chapter 4, verse 8. And you, O tower of the flock, O tower of the flock, that in Hebrew is migdal eater, O you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem, from Migdal Eder, in the region around Bethlehem. And we go on to Micah 5, verse 2. So Ephrath became known as Bethlehem Ephrathah, and then simply Bethlehem. Micah 5, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little, insignificant, you're too little. You live in the shadow of Jerusalem, but from you, you're too little to be among the clans of Judah, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. I'm gonna keep reading, it's not on the screen, but it says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he, this ruler, shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. That's the setting. We often don't think about all of that, do we? We go, oh, Bethlehem. So significant, so significant in the biblical story. Let's look quickly at the servants. There's the setting, then there's the servants. And in the same region, in that area between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, near the shepherd's tower, the Migdal Eater, there were shepherds. Out in the field, keeping walk over, watch over their flocks by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. When the angels went away, now verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. All the cast of characters, the servants, Let's start with the shepherds. The shepherds are the significant character in the story, aside, of course, from the baby. You know, the typical Christmas pageant, we've all been to them. There's one coming up, sort of, on Christmas Eve here. I love the full-blown Christmas pageant, you know, where all the kids dress up in the costumes and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, who, you know, everybody clamors, uh, during the, um, except for those kids who want to be Mary and Joseph and the baby, <laughs> But there's very few of those. Most of them want to be a sheep, right? They just stand there, nah, just eat stuff. It's kind of like me, right? <laughs> they just want to be the sheep. They don't do anything. They don't have anything to say. And then next best is the shepherds because, I mean, they're just out there with the sheep, right? They're just standing there doing their thing, you know, got a staff in their hand. And uh, eating their snack out in the field. And then all of a sudden the angel shows up. And that's when the, you know, everything, the focus is on the angels. And then it's on Jesus and the shepherds just sort of in the background, right? They're just hanging out, not doing too much. And the field shepherds in particular, in that region, around the tower of the shepherd, they're really the low of the low. They're kind of the bottom of society. At times in Israel, they were considered to be just above lepers. You didn't really have much to do with them. I mean, they're, they're really backwoods. They're out in the fields, they're dirty, they stink like sheep. Just a bunch of country bumpkins, right? But they're so significant, these shepherds. So significant in three areas. Of course, practically, they're sufficient for sustainability. I mean, where else do you get your food from? Except from farmers. It's interesting how, in times of crisis, when there's floods and fires and those kind of things, people all of a sudden realize that their food doesn't come from a grocery store, actually. Oh, you mean it comes from a farm? <laughs> it comes from a field? Sustainability, but also the sacrifices. These were the shepherds who tended the flocks that were set apart for breeding the unblemished sacrificial lambs that were birthed in the shepherd's tower to be used by the priests. There were shepherds who represented the priests who would look for these unblemished lambs and take the best of the best who were birthed at Migdal Eder. And these shepherds had such a big role to play in that. These were the shepherds who took a stand. Sustainability, sacrifices in a stand. What they saw, what they heard, they spoke and they proclaimed. These shepherds had, they were the very first evangelists to the good news of Jesus Christ. They proclaimed and they spoke what they saw and what they heard. That's, a, that's the role of a good witness. When a witness is called to court, they're not there to tell their own story. They're, to say, they're there to say, I saw this and I heard that. End of story. Those were the shepherds. They were entrusted with the good news. The most significant message in all of history came to the shepherds. I'm going to mention quickly other characters in the story. The servants, angels are servants. What I find interesting is that the angel Gabriel showed up to Mary earlier and told her that she would be the mother of Jesus. But the angel Gabriel didn't show up to the shepherds. I mean, angels are terrifying. That's why they were in fear. Um, what, angel, what we think angels look like and what they actually look like according to biblical descriptions are pretty different. But an angel of the Lord showed up. It wasn't Gabriel. It was more of a common angel if there is such a thing as a common angel. And then the heavenly house showed up with an angel of the Lord. Hebrews tells us that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve to serve those who will inherit salvation. They're servants. Mary was a servant. A young girl, a virgin, unmarried. The angel Gabriel showed up to her, told her what would, how she would be used in the Christmas story, in the plan of salvation. And in Luke chapter 1, if we back up, verse 38, and Mary said, behold, this was her response. She must have been overwhelmed, this young girl. Not married. You're going to have a child? How is this possible, she said. And the angel explained it to her, and she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And a little bit later, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That's the response of a servant. He who is mighty and has done great things for me, holy is his name. And Joseph, what a servant. We don't hear much about him, but we know that he was a carpenter. A simple blue collar builder, but a builder of the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. So significant. We're going to come back to the most important servant of all. The main character in the story, that is the baby. But I want to move on to the next thing that we often think is insignificant. That is the sign. The sign. And this will be a sign for you, shepherds. This will be a sign for you, shepherds. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There's the sign, swaddling cloths and a manger. Well, I mean, what's so special about that? I mean, swaddling has been going on for millennia, generations, across every, uh, you know, across every ethnic nation in the world. All cultures have swaddled babies. To swaddle just means to wrap them tightly. They, they come out of the womb, and they're used to being warm and tight and snuggled. And swaddled, all bundled up in there. And so a baby is born and they're swaddled, they're wrapped tightly to give them that feeling of security and warmth and protection. It's to keep them also so their hands don't go up to their face and put all these lovely scratches down their face, right? Easier for people who didn't have all the amenities like we have now in the past to swaddle their baby and wrap, strap them onto their back and continue doing work. On the farm. So what's so significant about this? Well, the Levitical shepherds would swaddle unblemished lambs at Migdal Eder in the region of Bethlehem, not only to keep them unblemished, but to identify them for temple use. Here's a lamb that is perfect. It is spotless. That's the lamb that's going to be used for the sacrifice at the temple. And so they swaddled that that lamb, that baby, to identify it, but also to keep it unblemished, to protect it. And a manger, I mean, what's so strange about a child in a manger? They were stranded. I mean, people put babies in drawers all the time if they don't have a crib or a bed. I don't know if you saw it on the news, but when Highway 1 first flooded uh, over in Langley, they did a news story of a couple who lived somewhere on the east side of Abbotsford, don't know where exactly they were from, but they gave birth. Did anyone see that story? Brand new baby, they're stuck in Langley at a hotel. And they did an interview. The news cameras went into the hotel room and they literally showed the mom had pulled a drawer out on, one of the, on the dresser there in the hotel room and set it up like a crib. Little baby in there, happy as could be. I mean, it's not, it's not unusual for people to put a baby in a drawer when you're traveling, when you're stranded especially. And so what was so unusual about this? Because Joseph and Mary were traveling. They're stranded. They're away from home. There was no room at the inn, and they were redirected to a stable. The most significant stable in the area at that time would have been the Shepherd's Tower. You see... Priestly shepherds not only swaddled the unblemished lambs to keep them from injury, to set them apart, but they would also lift them up to keep them from being injured by trampling or injured on the ground, and they would set them up. So that when the field shepherds, after the angel visited them, came to the place where Jesus was born, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Bethlehem Ephrata, Migdal Eder, because there was no room at the inn, and this was the stable, they would have immediately recognized Oh my goodness, this is the one that the angels declared to us. And the most significant part of the story is the Savior. And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David in Bethlehem a Savior who is Christ the Lord who was born in the city where David was born and anointed king. David, the backwoods shepherd boy of Israel, who became king in Jerusalem. Christ the Lord, the Messiah, the one to deliver, to save, to rescue the people from oppression, from the oppression not just of what people thought would be of Roman rule and tyranny, but the oppression and tyranny of sin and of Satan. And yet Jesus is so insignificant to so many people today, right? Why do I need a savior? Why do I need Jesus? Something that was not even remotely arguable When hundreds were lifted off the roads and out of gullies by helicopters after being swept away by mudslides or were pulled literally into boats as the flood waters rose, why do I need a savior? I think a lot of people asked that question prior to this atmospheric river a couple of weeks ago. Why do I need a savior? Because the circumstances are dire. And we're not talking about floods and fires and viruses, and pandemics. We're talking about sin. We're talking about Satan. We're talking about the real tyranny that is plaguing this world. Jesus is the Savior who encapsulates everything in our passage. He was born a Savior. He didn't become a Savior. It's why he left the throne room of heaven. He, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for my sake, he became poor. Poor to the point of being laid in a manger with animals so that you, so that I, by his poverty, might become rich. You know how Jesus was introduced uh, 30 years later when he began his public ministry in Israel? Do you remember that, how he was introduced? Hmm. He was introduced by his cousin John the Baptist, the son of Elizabeth and Mary, Elizabeth who gave birth, who had been barren, in her old age, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Elizabeth and Zechariah the priest. The one that Mary went to visit uh, in Elizabeth's pregnancy until she gave birth to John and then she went back to give birth to Jesus. It was John the Baptist who was born first, who was out in the wilderness, baptizing people for repentance and saying, hmm, there's one that's going to come yet, whose sandals I am unworthy to bend down and untie. I baptize you with water for repentance. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And Jesus came along. And this is how he was introduced to the world. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Wait a minute. How can someone who is born after you be before you? John knew the story. He knew the Christmas story. In fact, Speculation, but the swaddling cloths that were used to wrap this perfect lamb of God could very well have come from John's parents, given that Zechariah was a priest. And Mary was a young girl who had nothing. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. He is the suffering servant who who declared, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He is from the line of David, the tribe of Judah, from Bethlehem, the city of David, born in Bethlehem, even now reigning in the city of David, the new Jerusalem, higher than the angels. This is our Savior, who is Christ the Lord. How do we apply this? And when they saw it, the shepherds, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. The theme of our first Sunday of Advent is hope. Yet for as many as has been rescued in the past few weeks even, without Jesus, they are still without hope. Our job, like that of the shepherds, the angels, Joseph and Mary, is to be available as simple servants, to take what we've seen and heard and experienced and tell it to others so that they might wonder and they might ponder. And they might give glory and praise to God. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, Second Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hopes, our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That is our role. That is our role. To proclaim that others might ponder and that all glory and praise would go to Jesus, our Savior. So recently I was given a role (laughs) within our conference, the British Columbia Conference of Mennonite Brethren Churches. All of the churches of BC are together in one denomination, Mennonite Brethren. And I was serving on a committee called the Pastoral Ministries Committee. We oversee the matters of our confession. We credential new pastors and we, we oversee churches that, uh, we encourage those that are staying true and we challenge those who are drifting. And this last year, I was made chairman of that committee. <laughs> uh, and as a result of that, I am also sitting on the executive board of our, of our conference, the BCMB executive board. And I want to let you know that the role that I'm in overwhelms me and it makes me question what I'm doing. I am surrounded by masters and doctors of philosophy, of ministry, of theology, of divinity. And here I am, a simple farm kid from the backwoods of Saskatchewan (laughs) with an undergraduate degree from Briarcrest. And I must continually and intentionally tell myself that if God can use simple shepherds from the backwoods of Bethlehem to point others to the Savior who elicits all of the praise and the wonder and the joy and the glory and the fear and the peace from those with whom he is pleased, then he can use me and he can use you. He can use you. And we need to take a step back from all of the chaos that's going around us in the world right now and we need to ponder that. And to center ourselves afresh on the good news which is for all people. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I am so overwhelmed by the many things in your word that to us seem so insignificant but are just packed with so much meaning. And thank you that this doesn't apply just to the shepherds a couple of thousand years ago and the angels and Joseph and Mary and this applies to us. So help us to know how to take what we have experienced, what we've seen, what we've heard. Help us, Lord, to be able to just tell that to others. That a world around us that is dying because of the real tyranny of sin and of Satan might experience hope. The hope that you came to bring because of our Savior, Christ the Lord. God, we need you. Help us to glorify you and to praise you in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen.